Hello and welcome to the Mike Dominic Show. Today is July the 2nd. I have a little bit of a special announcement. I and my company, The Mad Butter Inc., are doing a open source competition for U.S. high school and undergraduate college students. If you've ever seen our Earth Day competitions, it's the same idea. But basically, you write a completely open source solution to the problem of voter access and making voting easier for people. You put it on GitHub, you submit it as a... Uh, you know, as an entry into our competition, the winner, picked by the team here at the Mad Botter, gets a brandy new System76 Thaleo machine, which if you don't know what that is, that is a uh, workstation class desktop computer that runs Linux, but Pop! OS in particular, because it's System76. So yeah, there's no cost to enter, completely free. This is just something to do a couple times a year. Um, if you want more information, the link will be in the show notes. So having said that, as always, I'm Mike Dominic. The show is brought to you by uh, my company, The Mad Butter Inc. We are a software development and consulting company. If you need Python, iOS, or web development done, let us know. We also do Ruby. I keep forgetting that. Today, I have a really cool guest who's a, uh, a friend of mine, a local. He's the the most famous blogger in Tampa, notably. <laughs> His name is Joey Davila. He's, uh, he's a really interesting guy. He's an iOS programmer. He does some work at... Uh, well, not just iOS, though. iOS, Python, Android, a whole bunch of stuff. He uh, also produces courses for raywenderlich.com, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. If you haven't, and you're looking into getting into mobile development, that's a great site, great resources. Uh, they have books, videos, the whole kit and caboodle. His information is going to be in the show notes as well to connect with him. Please reach out to me on Twitter at Dumanuko if you have any questions about the contest. And you know what? I'm just going to get on to it. Here's Joey. Hello, Joey. How are you? Doing quite well, Michael. How are you doing? Good. You know, I, I kind of knew you were around because I thought I heard accordion music. <laughs> well, I haven't played it yet today, but you know what? The day is still young. The day is still young. So we have Joey Davila with us today. He's uh, the most famous tech blogger in Tampa, I believe. <laughs> I made up that tagline for myself. It's, it's one of those things that you can neither prove nor disprove. So I just decided to go for it. It's part of a personal branding exercise. And if your people are from the Tampa area and go to Tampa Bay Tech or really, it's impressive how many of the meetups you go to, I have to say. It's, it's also scary, but how, how do you do it? Part of that actually is a Toronto-born habit. I'm originally from Toronto and I moved here in 2014 to be with my wife. One of us had to move. She doesn't like the cold and I thought it would be an adventure, but this is a habit that came about, say, circa 2002, 2003. A whole bunch of us who had gone to Austin or San Francisco or Seattle to chase our fortunes uh, had returned back to Toronto after the uh, dot-com crash. And we were kind of lamenting that, you know, we were missing those scenes that we were part of when we were in these big sure. tech cities. And we decided, you know what, it, we should just start doing things to recreate that and possibly, uh, you know, turn Toronto at least into a slightly more respectable tech city. And that started events like uh, Demo Camp. Demo Camp is basically high tech show and tell. You present a whatever project you're working on, and it could be anything personal, all the way up to enterprise wide commercial. You'd have five minutes to show to the audience, no slides allowed. The only thing you were allowed to show Excellent. on the big screen was your software in action. And then you do 10, 15 minutes of Q&A. And that just started the ball rolling. And now Toronto is one of uh, the big tech cities. And um, 
It's just a habit that I picked up. It helps not having kids and it helps living relatively close to downtown. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I have a kid and it makes those meetups tough. Yeah. So exactly. It's a bit of a challenge. I think the other thing is some of it is probably a habit ingrained in me from my parents. I am actually the only person in my family who did not go into medicine. I went into tech instead, but my parents were really involved with the local community and the Filipino Canadian Medical Association and that sort of thing. And I saw the power of community involvement because of their work in the community and decided, you know how it is. Sometimes the apple does not fall that far from the tree. And yeah, those are habits I picked up from mom and dad. That's awesome. And I think folks will probably also know you from your work at uh, Ray Wenderlich, right? I think so. Yeah. So Ray Wenderlich, actually, I owe a lot to because that's how I learned iPhone programming way back in the Objective-C day. So this was uh, 2011, 2012. And I learned uh, iPhone programming through the book iOS Apprentice, originally written by Matthias Hallmans. And I... I loved it so much and I decided, okay, you know, someday I want to write for Ray Wenderlich. And when they had a call for Android writers, as they were expanding into Android, I said, okay, this is my in. This is how I'm going to get in. I'm going to write an Android article. And uh, from nice. there, now that must have been back, back in the Java days, right? Yes. So at the time, yes, it was still primarily Java. Kotlin was, Kotlin was an interesting thing that you could do. You could program Android in as a plugin, but you could not. It was not considered uh, an official language at that point. So yeah, that was Java. That's awesome. So you're you're a mobile developer. You're an accordion player, which I, I I've actually heard you play. You're pretty good. <laughs> I was I sort of thought they were joking. I was, where the hell was I? It was, was it, it wasn't powered up. It was one of the other Tampa events. And they said this guy is going to play the accordion. This is before I had, I had met you. And I said okay, sure, right, the accordion. You're very funny. Sure enough, you jumped right up. You whipped out an accordion and. I've never heard rock music with an accordion before. That was a complete accident. That came about in 1999. I was living in downtown Toronto then, and I wanted a new hobby. And I thought being a street musician might be a really fun hobby to take up. The problem is I have no talent for the guitar. And I was complaining. Mm. I was just going, you can't, I can't drag my synth out on the street. You can't, it's just too bulky and you need to plug it in and you need an amplifier and you can't drag a piano on the street. And I was I was mentioning to my friend, you know what, maybe I should take up the accordion. And he said, you know what, there's one that's been sitting in my basement for years doing nothing. Take it. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So uh, a friend and I had both taken up the accordion at the same time. And I remember the date, Saturday, May 1st, 1999. We hit the streets of Toronto and we ended up outside Toronto's most notorious goth bar, the Sanctuary Vampire Sex Bar, in the afternoon. Okay. The doors were wide open. It was not supposed to be open yet. And it turned out that they were mopping the floors for that night because it was Saturday night, the big club night. And uh, somehow we got in a conversation with the bouncers and it turned out to be one of the bouncers' birthdays. And we played Happy Birthday for him in a Marilyn Manson minor key. And he loved it. The DJ came up to us and said, look, come back tonight, play anything off the goth top 20. We'll put you on stage. We'll mic you up. If you get any applause at all, I will give you all the beer you can drink. That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So we ran back home, uh, learned, uh, basically worked out a quick arrangement of nine inch nails, head like a hole, (laughs) came back, (laughs) came back dressed in black, hopped on stage, did the number, 
There was a moment of silence followed by a lot of applause. Just shocked silence because nobody was expecting it. And uh, yeah, and yeah, we were, uh, and you know what? DJ Todd was true to his word. He set us up with all the beer we could drink that night. It was a fantastic evening. And then from then on, I said, you know what? I'm carrying this thing around wherever I go. And it has ended up opening job opportunities for me. So I took the accordion to Linux World 2000 in New York. And it turns out that Emmett Plant, who was an editor at Slashdot at the time, also brought his accordion to the Slashdot (laughs) booth. And we ended up jamming. And um, at one point, I leapt in front of some news cameras with the accordion, parlayed that into an interview. And by the time I flew back to Toronto, they said, guess what? You're in charge of developer relations now. At Slashdot. Uh, no, not at Slashdot, at the company I was okay. working for, OpenCola. But uh, yeah, but I've stayed in touch with Emmett ever since. That's amazing. So is the moral of the story for perhaps some of uh, our younger listeners here, pick up an unusual instrument and take it to conferences? I would say, yeah, because you know what? Yeah. It, turns out, it turns out musical instruments make friends. And in the programming world, there's a strong musical musician undercurrent. A lot of programmers I know play some kind of musical instrument. Yeah, I think it's just part of the creative bent, just as, you know, uh, uh, putting together keywords is a creative act as well. No, that's super true. So you do a lot of community engagement. You know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think Tampa over the last few years, uh, and maybe Florida in general, has seen kind of a, a, a tech lift of sorts, if I can really torture my metaphors here. <laughs> sure, that's not too tortured. But uh, okay, I think you're right. And I actually was listening to a couple of earlier Uh, your earlier podcasts. And I know from listening that I'm not the only person who's observed this. And yeah, I think that's the case. I think part of it is that there is this big inbound migration to Florida. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh, Florida overtook New York State as the third most populated state in the union. So, you know, one of the natural consequences of that is, yeah, sure. Among those people, we are going to get techies. There's also inexpensive cost of living. And at the same time, you know what the big tech cities, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, New York City, Boston, uh, you know, if we look at Canada, the MTV cities, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, they're all quite expensive to live in. Moving to Tampa was like getting a 25% raise. So yes. I mean, economics is a, economics is a bit of a factor. Uh, I think um, ubiquitous high speed internet is a big factor. Uh, working remotely, you know, really, really isn't possible until you've got really good bandwidth. And then I think another new factor that's just popped up is the natural experiment in remote working that we unexpectedly got because of staying at home to uh, avoid the coronavirus. Yeah, so it's, it's been uh, certainly a challenging time. How is that going for you, the working from home? It's easy for me because only until recently I'd been working at home or working remotely most of the time. I was developer evangelist at Microsoft for about three years, and that's a remote job. In fact, they actually even uh, give you a monthly stipend to uh, help cover car expenses and things like that. That's how seriously they took the fact that it was a remote job. And there was also a lot of flying around. So I'm used to that working. Uh, And then when I moved here, I worked remotely for a couple of companies, telecom expense management company called GSG, an RFID company called SmartTrack, that sort of thing. Shopify, I worked remotely at. So yeah, I'm used to it. 
it wasn't that big a change. I guess the the major change was that occasionally just to just to break up the monotony, I would probably hang out and work from a cafe a couple of hours a day, a couple of days a week. You can't do that. You can't do that during coronavirus. No, no, you're 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 stuck in. So it kind of brings us to the you know the whole community aspect of it, right? Because obviously, I know you do a great newsletter about all the happenings every week. I think it comes out on Mondays, if I'm not mistaken. I hype it up again on Monday. So I actually try and put okay. it out on the Saturday just to give people the weekend to 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 look at it and mull over what they want to attend. Right. But with everybody locked in, how well do you think people are adapting? I know I've, I've partaken in a few Zoom meetups, which are interesting, a little different for sure. I think they're adapting surprisingly well. I mean, there is a reason, you know, when a joke falls flat, they say, oh, well, you had to be there. There's something to be said for in-person meetups, but people have adapted pretty well. I have to say they figured out how to move move their meetup formats to something that's online where you can't be present. They've been using all sorts of interesting tools. So for instance, Lunchpool has a tool. It's actually based on another online networking tool called uh, Remo, I believe. And it uses this kind of metaphor of a big room with a bunch of tables and uh, various seats around the table. And you have to click on a seat or a table to join a specific conversation. Oh, that's Um, interesting. Yeah. So, I I mean, that's produced some interesting effects. But one of the nice things is it allows people to do something that you'd normally do in real life anyways, which is you'd probably join a conversational group at a meetup or gathering and then bounce around to different conversational groups. The lunch pool or Remo system lets you do that. I've seen other people do that using Discord, Mm, which now has exploded past just beyond just gaming. And now, you know, I think soon will be just as ubiquitous as Slack. So, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that's the other thing about this great natural experiment of coronavirus is, yeah, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things that were merely hypotheticals are now real life things that we have to try out and figure out. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you do remote work now that it's absolutely necessary? Because it wasn't that long ago that, you know, IBM and Yahoo were saying, okay, remote workers, you now have to come into the office. You're more productive that way. And yeah, that's it's interesting. I mean, we've but the the Mad Botter have been remote for a while only because I'm from New Jersey and I moved here like three years ago or something and still had staff in both states. Right. So that kind of forces, you know, Slack to become your office in quotes, um, even though we had spaces in both. So maybe a little more positive note, right? Sure. WWDC, virtual, I think they did a great job at a virtual conference. I was actually very impressed. I hear you like your Swift. You didn't like it? uh, No, no. Actually, I was about to say they may have to, even if they get back to an in-person conference, they may have to hang on to some of the tricks that they used in- jumping from topic to topic. Because you know what? Actually, it made things move along a lot faster when somebody doesn't have to walk onto the stage or while somebody else walks off the stage. The transitions were great. Yeah, I think they may have to hang on to some of that, even when they went live and in person. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought, And I felt just the pace was, it was, it was a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, a lot of meat. Uh, instead of, you know, so this is my pet peeve with WWDC. There's a lot of waiting for the audience to stop clapping. That yeah. goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, I'm glad that they they chose not to throw in canned yeah. applause. I hear that they do it for a couple of sports events. I'm glad they just 
didn't. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't. I think it was uh I think it was pretty pretty smart of them just to give you the information. But I, I know you're a you're a pretty big iOS developer. How are you feeling about Swift UI? Okay. Well, Swift UI in the 1.0 form that I've been working with, I think I felt it was a little rushed. There's some really good stuff there, but there's some rough edges that uh, I ran into while working on the eighth edition of iOS Apprentice that I think took away from the experience. It was um, with the checklist app, which is basically an app. It's the classic to-do list app. It's a very good, you know, it's one of the things that you, uh, you cover in a beginner programming tutorial. And there was one rough edge that required us to import some workaround code, which I think kind of ruined it for a beginning programmer. If you're an intermediate or senior programmer, you just have some experience under your belt, you understand, yes, sometimes I have to, you know, just bring in some third party class that just makes life easier. But it's kind of a rude awakening for a beginner. The other thing is in the first revision of the of iOS Apprentice, this edition actually is the first one that covers Swift UI. We actually tried to cover Swift UI first. And we're going from the assumption that you have never programmed before. And Swift really? UI. Yeah. And Swift UI, as I was writing this beginner's material for Swift UI, it occurred to me that, wow, you have to have a whole bunch of concepts already internalized to program in Swift UI. Like all of a sudden, you know, you're doing protocol oriented programming and structs are different from classes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like for instance, I mean, unless you mark a property as a a function is mutating, you can't have a function within a struct mutate its own property. That is something you have to explain to a new user. And then later on, you're talking about classes and that's a different matter entirely. And then you have to talk about the differences between structs and classes. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of method chaining that is inherent in Swift UI. And, And then there is state. You don't have to introduce as a concept at the very beginning at, with UI kit that you definitely have to introduce when dealing with Swift UI. So, you know, yeah. for a React programmer, a React programmer can walk in and go, ah, okay, I get it. Declarative reactive UI. I've seen this before. A brand new programmer who's never written a line of code before in their life, or maybe has only done a little. Yeah, you are throwing a kitchen sink of concepts. Yeah, that's that's a lot. That I'm surprised actually targeting brand new developers, but it's Swift is just my crazy opinion, not necessarily an easy language. <laughs> versus say, I know people will pillar me. I think Objective C was like one of the easiest languages to learn. Because at the time, right, going way back when, there weren't that many features. Sure. Whereas Swift, it seems like there's a feature for everything. I, not that I dislike Swift very much. It's you know, I, I can't imagine being brand new and coming in and being like, and you, you just sitting me down and saying, okay, man, so this is mutable, this is immutable, this is state, this is a method. Oh, and you're chaining it to these five other methods. And oh, this is a struct, but that's a class. Like, mm-hmm. can you just like galaxy brain head explosion for a new developer, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, structs are almost like classes, but when they're not like classes, they're quite different. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, because it does have Objective C as one of its parents, you know there is uh, mm-hmm. there are some standard Objective C ways of doing things that got picked up by Swift. Yeah, I actually would say yes. Don't take it up as a beginner language. When it comes to beginner languages, I always say, you know what, go open source and go Python. Yep, 
Yeah, I, I know from uh, when we were chatting before, you and I have both somehow discovered the love of Python recently. It's, well, I've gotten more involved with Python again recently. Python, I actually stumbled into completely by accident back in 1999. And that's because I had accepted a contract to do work for um, this, uh, what was at the time a gift certificate site, givex.com. It was a way for you to give gift certificates to other people online. And the guy programming it was a total contrarian. So you have to remember that this is the era when if you were writing uh, backends for web applications, you were doing it on Linux with Perl and MySQL. And he, he was a contrarian. He was NetBSD, Python, PostgreSQL. He, just, he took every alternative choice. Yeah, he did. <laughs> That's and insane. he basically went, look, can you pick up Python by the time you get back from your trip? And I said, I, I think I can. Let me see what I can do about that. Let me see what if I can learn on my trip. Here's the challenge. That trip was to Burning Man 99. Oh, boy. The most distracting event <laughs> of all time. So, But I went. I brought my Toshiba 96 meg RAM laptop, 230, I think it was about two, 233 megahertz Pentium 2 chip, maybe? It was around that era. Sounds about right for the time. Okay, and this is Python 1.6. So this is, um, to work with strings, you had to import string. That is how far back in time that was. Oh, geez. <laughs> but I learned it at Burning Man. During the day, Burning Man is actually kind of mellow and relaxed and quiet. And um, yeah. And so with a copy of O'Reilly learning Python, because internet access was incredibly precious back then. And you were lucky if you got 14.4 and you were probably metered. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Copy of O'Reilly's learning Python, my Toshiba laptop, a nice cool drink and hanging out in a rented RV. I taught myself enough Python to do programming for GiveX.com by the time I got back from Burning Man. So I figure, you know what, any programming language that you can learn at Burning Man has to be good. You know what, between the accordion and learning Python at Burning Man in an RV, I think we can just call you the troubadour of Tampa now. <laughs> just get the hat and you're ready to roll. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. That's like, that, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Programming, it can be a gateway to adventure if you... Uh, it, it, you know, if you do it right and you land yourself in the right circumstances. And uh, actually, that's one thing I like about the Tampa Bay area is I think a lot of the right circumstances are beginning to coalesce here. There's a lot going on. I now live in Seminole Heights, which is rather reminiscent of a neighborhood that uh, I used to frequent in Toronto called Parkdale. So old houses craft breweries, that sort of thing. Uh, still making the transition from a slightly more seedy area where Carol Baskin met her first husband to this. <laughs> hip it's area. amazing how often Carol comes up on the show. It's a little <laughs> frightening too, because I'm scared, but we need to accept her. She's part of, well, we need to accept that as that's part of the Tampa wackiness, right? You know what? I'm, I'm a transplant like you. I'm originally from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, the first year, I tried to resist. I did. I, you know, I tried to hold on to something. Now I'm like, oh, well, of course you have a tiger over there. I mean, why wouldn't you? 
Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, uh, so uh, I mean, yeah, we've got chickens. Chickens, we've got all kinds of animals. Yeah, yeah we've got, uh, yeah, uh, Seminole Heights has Earl the Donkey. I have not yet met Earl the Donkey, but he is appa- apparently the official donkey of Seminole Heights. That is incredible. Yeah, I, uh, let me tell you, Florida has been one of the most interesting places I've ever lived. I will. Oh, yeah. Especially Tampa in particular. But yeah. So, you know, out of the whole mobile ecosystem, is there anything you're particularly excited about? Right now, actually, it is ubiquitous ARM. It's coming. So ARM-based chips are the chips on which mobile devices are based. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you are, it doesn't matter if you're running uh, an Android phone or an iOS phone or... If you're still stubbornly hanging on, and you know what? Good for you. Windows Phone, because I used to hey, be a it was great. I was a <laughs> Windows 8 phone developer. I loved it. Okay, yeah. And I was a Windows Phone champ. That was my job at... Uh, you really? Okay. That was my job at Microsoft. I was trying to make Windows Phone happen, despite all the Regina Georges telling me, stop trying to make Windows Phone happen. It's never going to happen. My wife actually worked for Microsoft back then uh, in sales, trying to do enterprise sales to sell businesses Windows Phone. That oh, was- wow. Yeah, so it's a weird, weird connection, but I, I'll go on a limb here. I still think Windows Phone OS, so Windows, whatever it is, Windows Eight Phone OS was really good. But it was good. It, 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 it worked. Was, there were a lot of good ideas there. Albert Shum's Metro user interface was a, a, had a lot of good ideas. Very quick to program. I used to have this demo called Zero to Fart App in sixty seconds. So <laughs> if you had the fart MP3 sound handy already, I would do this demo where I was going. You could write a fart app. You could write and deploy a fart app in sixty seconds. You know, and you got to use C sharp. And if you happen to be an enterprise developer, and at the time, you know, that meant you know building stuff on the Microsoft platform. You already knew how to do it. You are already a mobile programmer. You just don't know it yet. That was my argument, and they promised. I, I know they, they, they. We used to have these internal meetings, and they said a half billion dollars worth of marketing is coming. I never saw it. I was going to say I don't think so. <laughs> I did get a very cool football from Microsoft at a developer event they hosted. <laughs> okay, all right. That's the thing I miss the most about Microsoft as a developer evangelist was the swag closet. Microsoft Canada in Toronto, we had the most beautiful stuff in the swag closet. I was empowered to give you an Xbox 360 if you wrote a really cool app. I had Xbox 60 controllers. I had keyboards and mice. Yeah, I I even think we gave away, you know, um, some decent Dell Inspirons or two. Dell were our official sponsors. Everywhere I went, if I appeared in public, I had to appear with a Dell. Interesting. I I, I did not know about that. Yeah. So these days, dev-wise, though, you're doing mostly, it sounds like native iOS and Android. Is that fair? Let's see. Most recently, until I get laid off, it was uh, native. Uh, actually, no, it wasn't native. It was uh, it was Titanium Accelerator. I was oh, yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, I was working for Lilypad at the time. But yeah, it's mostly uh, iOS and Android tutorials at the moment. And uh, yeah, lately, uh, while looking for my next gig, I have been filling my time and building my skill set by teaching, by writing the 8th edition of the iOS Apprentice book, working on a video tutorial for the uh, for, for Apple's uh, asynchronous programming system uh, combine. And Ooh. I'm going to be teaching Python shortly oh, for cool. a few weeks in uh, July. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That, that, so that is a pretty full plate. That is, that's a lot. 
Yeah. And then looking for work. I've got a few interested nibbles and it's a, you know, it's a combination of uh, looking around and of course, dealing with the current situation of quarantine and what business is like at the moment. So yeah, I think a lot of yeah, a lot of places are, are kind of freezing or slowing down at least. Yeah, but I'm trying to treat it like an opportunity. It is, I mean, if you've ever been slammed with work and wish that you had a magic button that could stop time so you could get a few things done, this is the closest we're going to get. I would say mm-hmm. try and treat this like some kind of golden time-stopping opportunity because it is never going to happen again in your lifetime. Never. No, this is a great opportunity for personal development. If you've wanted to try, uh, insert, everybody loves Rust that listens to this show for some reason. So if you want to try Rust, now's your time, right? Like this is, this is an opportunity that, yeah, I agree you won't get again. And I hope we don't get again. Yeah. I'd rather not get it, but you know, I figure, you know what, you might as well take advantage of it. If something like this happens, just ask yourself the question, what if this was the biggest lucky break and I just don't know it yet? Yeah, my wife was actually on the last episode of the show because she recently wrote and published a book during quarantine. Like she just took, oh, wow. took the opportunity by the horns. Yeah, that's. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's the right attitude. That's why anybody listening, if, you, if you've if you wanted to learn a new tech, wanted to try a side project, there's never been a better time. Yeah, that's one. And that's just one thing about uh, this current situation. I think the other thing is a lot of the usual scene events and I'm just thinking of the Tampa Bay area at the moment, have been greatly disrupted. So there are a whole bunch of people who have continued their events online. And some of them have held regular meetups, but a lot of them have been derailed. And it's kind of like, uh, this situation is kind of like, I don't know, either that uh, a New Year's resolution Mm. or a diet. You know, once you fall off that, it's really hard to get back on. And a lot of people just never get back on a resolution or diet that they've fallen off. And you know what, this could be an opportunity for a lot of people who, you know, if they wanted to start something, now is actually the time to get ready, get ready, because that opportunity is coming soon, even before we get back to seeing each other full time. But yeah, once we see each other in person, but even before, now is a good time to start that online group and build that membership and start meeting and in anticipation of the time when we can actually all meet face to face again. Now that's such great advice. Yeah, that really is. All right. So I have two very like diabolical questions. I always close with they're really, that's right. That is standard operating procedure. Yes. Go ahead. I am ready. The first one is the actual hard one. Um, Okay. What should I have asked you that I didn't know to, or just failed to ask you? Ah, okay. Okay, that is interesting and diabolically hard because I don't want to make it self-serving. <laughs> I want to actually Why not? I want to kind of make it useful to uh to your audience. Okay. Okay. And ooh, that's a tricky one. But that, yeah, uh, that one kills basically everybody. Yeah. Okay, but one question you should have uh you should have asked me and you know, a good one might be what was my biggest goof up and what what did I learn from it? I love it. So, Joey, what was your biggest goof up and what did you learn from it? Okay. Uh, Career-wise, biggest goof up? One of the more memorable ones actually was my first client meeting ever. And uh, I was quite unprepared. So, this was back in the days of CD-ROMs. And um, this is my first job out of school. And I ended up working for a company called Mackerel. They were an interactive multimedia company. So they made interactive CD-ROMs. That was the thing at the time. This this was the era when people were actually opening CD-ROM stores 
You remember those? No. Uh, I, I do remember them. Yeah. Yeah. They put them up in malls and everybody was trying to write the next mist or seventh guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so were we. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, <laughs> to, to help pay the bills, we were taking on commercial jobs. So people were looking for promotional CD-ROMs that would that would demonstrate some product. You'd just pop the CD-ROM in your machine and you could click on things and find out more. They were effectively electronic brochures. And I was working at a company that was uh, mostly art school graduates who had hit the limit of what they could do with HyperCard. Mm. And uh, they, they were going, look, we have this new tool called Macromedia Director. We have no idea how to use it. It uses something called factories, which I think are some kind of object programming. Can you help us? (laughs) And I said, yes, I know exactly what uh, I can help you. But uh, the thing was that uh, I had never, ever worked on a multimedia project before. I'd come out of school learning C and all my stuff with the exception of the graphics class was all command line. And all of a sudden I'm writing programs in a strange scripting language director was kind of like programming flash so there's a timeline way of programming there is a textual way of programming and you mix them together all of a sudden i was uh, having to control things like sprites and asynchronous sound i went with the sales guy to the client to show the first demo and this guy was very 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 unhappy He's going, this is not the sort of work I've come to expect from Mackerel. Where's this fancy animation effect? Where's this nicely timed sound effect? How come it feels so slow and sluggish? And this is after me putting in uh, two or three weeks worth of solid work on an unfamiliar platform, unfamiliar language. And I'm sinking slowly into my chair. And then finally, the sales guy just stands up and just goes, look. And he points to me, this programmer did exactly what you asked. To the letter. He gave you exactly what you wrote out. And then he just goes right to the guy's face. And he basically says, two words, buddy. Read the effing spec. Wow. <laughs> less polite, yeah, the less polite version. But uh, from that, wow, I learned a couple of things. One is get sales on your side. Yes. <laughs> a good salesperson who knows how to handle these situations Make sure you've got one and make sure they're on your side. They are as valuable a resource as your IDE and platform. They are part of the business platform. Do not underestimate their value. I think the other thing, of course, is learn, you know, there are ways to prepare for client meetings and make sure you learn them. Yes. But that was my by fire. And I am forever grateful to that salesperson. No, that that is a great story. All right. Let's douse the fire with the easy one. Okay. What does your day-to-day setup look like in terms of, uh, you know, machine, OS, ID, you know, common IDE? Okay. Um, let's see now. Across all the OSs, definitely VS Code. Okay. All right. That It, it looks and feels the same no matter whether you are running uh, Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever. My current setup is I've got two desks organized in an L shape. Let's see on the left. <laughs> on my left side is iOS. So, and that is, and it's still running on a trustworthy 2014 era, 15 inch MacBook pro. Amazing. Uh, which, you know, still runs like a charm. I'm holding off on my, especially after WWDC, I am definitely holding off until the arm machine come out. Absolutely. Because I remember the power PC Intel transition and what happened, what very quickly happened to power PC machines. And I also remember the 68,000 to power PC transition. And 
what happened to 68,000 machines shortly after. So, yeah, it's gonna... very depressing for someone sitting in front of an iMac Pro, let me tell you. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that app, and especially these days, Apple is very happy to leave stuff. <laughs> it, yeah, they're merciless. They don't, yeah, it's yeah, they're not hoarders, not even close. Yeah, on the yeah, what's actually interesting is the Linux side of the desk. I am okay. running, uh, I have got three different machines on the Linux side of the desk of varying degrees of age and power and OS. So the main beast and the one that I'm probably going to use to teach Python on is uh, ThinkPad running Mint. Respectable. Yep. Yeah. The ThinkPad. Nice, nice machine. And this is a 2012 era ThinkPad. And I have completely replaced anything that isn't the motherboard. So Wi-Fi, the drive, the RAM, Everything else has been replaced. Compact 610. So this is a Core 2 Duo-based laptop from 2009. I'm running the maximum 4 gig RAM on it, and it's running Peppermint Linux. Nice. So super lightweight. I may end up using that sometime during my Python course, just as an experiment to go, you know, how low-powered can I go? And then finally, the Raspberry Pi. So I've got a Raspberry Pi 3, 1 gig of RAM, ARM chip, and, uh, you know, once again, runs Python 3.7 like a charm. I may end up using that at least for one Python class just to say, look, this is, I mean, this is a $30. This is a $30 computer. This is a computer that costs less than a steak dinner at Burns. And yet, you know, you can write Python on it. Isn't that amazing? And you the can times yourself- have changed, man. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I've even been noodling with ARM assembly language. Have not touched assembly since... Uh, university on the oh, NS32000 wow. or high school on uh, the 6502 on my old Apple IIe. But uh, you know what? Uh, still a lot of fun, still a lot of instructions just to do tiny little things, but it is really cool to see what is happening, what is happening at the bare metal level. And you know, it's Absolutely. a good thing for, yeah, it's a good thing for a programmer to know, despite the fact that most of the time we are operating stratospheric levels of abstraction away from the machine. It's good to know what's going on at the chip level sometime. Right. Especially since it's we nice are to, yeah, moving into an ARM world. Right, right. It's, it's nice to know that there are things other than electrons still, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Joey, thank you for coming on. Where can people find you online? Okay, well, uh, let's see now. There, there's a couple of places. The best places, technical-wise, is globalnerdy.com. So Global Nerdy is my tech blog. That is where I write about software, hardware, and the Tampa Bay tech scene. That's also where the my weekly event list of Tampa Bay tech events is. Personal stuff, that is basically whatever enters my head and whatever I feel like writing about. That is, I've got my personal blog, The Adventures of Accordion Guy in the 21st Century. Uh, <laughs> that's at joeydevilla.com. All right. Joey, thank you for coming on. Hope to see you soon once the lockdown's over. I'll hear that sweet, sweet accordion music. Okay, I'd be happy to do that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to a face-to-face again. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for coming.